Hey everybody, you're very welcome to Season 2, Episode 13 of the Asking for a Parent Podcast. It's me, Dr. Coleman Ochter again, and it's a real pleasure to get to chat to you. We're in Easter week, well we've just had Easter, and I hope everyone had a nice Easter. If you were like me, spending an hour putting together Easter hunt clues that were solved within about four minutes, which <laughs> seemed like a not the greatest use of our time, but... As I said to myself, it's a pandemic, Coleman. What else would you be doing? So, uh, yeah, no, we hope you had lots of chocolate and treats yesterday and uh, that you had a nice, safe Easter weekend. Uh, We've lots of questions to get through in the episode today and thank you all for sending in your questions. And again, thanks out to everyone for listening and downloading the episodes. It's, It's fantastic that it's still going so strong. And a great thanks to Senator Lynn Rowan for her episode last week, which we've gotten huge feedback from and it was... Uh, really insightful and honest opinion that she shared with us around her experience of being parented etc there's a real flavor to the questions that we're getting into the podcast at the moment and i think what we're probably seeing is the beginnings of the impact of lockdowns lots of questions around maybe more smaller children and really missing out on social interaction social development reading social cues lots of questions around maybe anxiety interaction with peers um, emotional dysregulation so I think these are anecdotally signs of perhaps the impact of the lockdown so again just pointing to the importance of the collective for children and so we've heard the announcements last week that things will start to open up a little bit again and towards the end of the month we might have uh, children's sport back and we'll be back in school hopefully after Easter and once we can keep a lid on those numbers and that things don't get out of hand after Easter, hopefully we will be working towards a summer where more activities will be planned and possible. Uh, and it sounds certainly from the questions that we're getting in and the atmosphere out there that that social interaction for children is really important. So fingers crossed we get that uh, soon. But from the point of view of this week's episode, it's a really good episode. We go through lots and lots of questions from Uh, soiling to anxiety to uh, issues around managing children's behavior uh, tantrums friendships so there's loads to get through so i won't hold you any longer but i hope you enjoy it and i'll let you get on and listen to this week's episode anyway it gives me great pleasure to invite my guest on this week's listeners questions episode of the asking for a parent podcast sarah courtney Sarah is a workplace parent coach specializing in maternity and paternity coaching. She does this through a blend of one-to-one coaching, line management support, workshops and talks. Sarah is the mom of two daughters, a coach and a champion of supporting parents who want to remain in the workplace. So Sarah, thanks a million for joining me. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, Coleman. I'm really well, thanks. Happy Easter. And happy Easter to you too. So 2021, we open with this on everyone's uh, interviews and chats, but so how has it been for you? I mean, again, two daughters, you've had the school closures, the reopenings, the endless requests for snacks, the <laughs> ridiculously long hours of trying to fill, and you've worked, I'm guessing, throughout that as well. So how has 2021 been for you? Yeah, exactly that. Ups and downs, you know, straight back into school closures from the beginning, which at least we had the experience of the first time round. I think we all learned a lot from that. The school was fantastic. I would say the second time round in terms of getting online, Zoom calls. Um, The kids even just being that little bit much older. Um, So they're in third class and senior infants now. That seemed to make quite a big difference. 
in that they were, you know, up for it a little bit more, um, but still need, you know, constant supervision, constant cajoling, encouraging, pushing. And my eldest, like, you know, would be very diligent. And even when we might say, you know, okay, that's enough now, it's okay. She'd be nearly saying, no, I better not get in trouble and wanting to finish it. Balance it with her that, you know, do your best. But some days we're just not going to get through it all. You know, her dad and I are both working and there's only so much you can do in the day. But, you know, it's been a great year in terms of time with the family and learning to do this. And look, if we have to do it for another little while, we'll be okay. Yeah, that was my next question was how it has impacted on family life, because I think there is um, there's probably a readjustment of values and experiences and all that sort of stuff because we've had that. But it's also, I, I think, I speak from my own experience, quite suffocating as well when you don't have your own outlets as a parent to, I don't know, play my tag rugby on a Monday night or you know, go and see my friends or have the odd night out or whatever it might be. It has been incredibly difficult. Uh, have you experienced that as well? I mean, absolutely. I think we're all sick to death of our 5K and, and being in each other's space all the time. Um, and I'm very grateful that I, I have paid work, um, that, I, that I have that other outlet and that, you know, there's a locked door behind me now so they can't come in. Um, I think I would have found it harder, even though it has been such a, a juggle to fit it all in you know, with them being here and homeschooling and working. But I'm very glad I have it as an outlet because everything else is gone. And, you know, we live a little bit away from where they're in school. So the pals aren't around. Um, so it really is just the four of us and the dog. Um, the dog has been a godsend because he's, he's new enough in the last few months that he's been a distraction. But yeah, it's, it's been very, you know, it's quite isolating in a sense. But we're, we're good and they're happy. You know, my little one loves being at home. That's that's a really good thing. My older girl um, is definitely missing her, her friends. She misses her sport at the weekends. You know, she is ready for life to go back to normal. But, um, you know, hopefully we're getting there. Hopefully there's a light at the end of the tunnel at this stage. And the reason I was really interested to have you on as a guest, Sarah, was is because of your role as a workplace parent coach. And I think... It's come up loads of times around the challenges of parenting and working um, and, and how one impacts on the other. I only wrote an article last week about, on, in the Irish Examiner about the challenges of working from home and how that impacts on family life. You know, and um, you know, I know it here. I, I've, just before this podcast, I had to go in and say, everyone offline now, dad's going to be in this meeting and nobody messing on the stairs and don't make noise and... And there's a bit of an intrusion on their home, you know, because I'm working from home. Later on this afternoon, I'm going to try and buy an office chair or pick one up because my back is in a jock from sitting in the kitchen table chair. And, you know, there's all these different things. But I noticed from my colleagues, some of us are bursting to get back. You know, we want to be on site and the big lecture halls and 200 students and all that. I know from others that that's the last thing that they want. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are very comfortable with the way in which things are now. And I think anticipating what the workplace is going to look like post-COVID as parents and employees is, I don't know whether we've thought an awful lot, of, awful lot about that. You know, it's kind of the, we're kind of, we're, we're like leaving cert students. We're focusing on getting our points and then we haven't even thought about where about we're going to college. Do you know what I mean? There's that sort of thing. And we're talking yeah. about getting out of the lockdown, but we haven't really given a great deal of thought of what 
post-lockdown employment and parenting and returning to that is going to be like. So first of all, I want to ask you what it is that you do. And the second one is I want to ask you, how do you become a workplace parent coach? And maybe if you could talk us through your road to that or your journey to that point. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I have two kids. And when I was on maternity leave with my first, it was at that phase where everyone I knew was, was starting families. Um, and then I was meeting, you know, women out and about in uh, playgrounds and coffee shops. And there was a kind of a common theme underlying the conversations when we moved on past sort of babies. Um, and that was about work and the worry that was there. And it was really prevalent how am I going to cope how am I going to manage I'm tired already um, my partner works you know how are we going to get the right childcare? how am I going to be taken seriously you know is this the end of my career and I had spent uh, my whole career to that point working in HR and I knew how long it took to hire people to induct people to train people to keep them and when you lose them it was a real hit to the business so I just felt companies were missing a trick here they were missing the obvious support that could be offered to predominantly new mothers but also new fathers to support them through a huge transition so women in Ireland are out of the workplace for maybe six months to a year sometimes even a little bit longer on maternity leave it's a really long time in the life of a company some women going back to different jobs different different locations different teams you know, personnel changes, whatever it might be, and sort of expecting themselves to slot back in without any support. And what I could see happening personally and professionally was women stepping out of the workplace or having one baby, maybe having a second one and planning to be out at that point because they couldn't make it work. And it just didn't make any sense for me. And we were losing all of this talent. So after I had my first daughter, I went back to work and in my HR role and I had an opportunity to train as a coach. And I did it because I needed something that wasn't work and wasn't parenting. I needed another outlet for me. And the irony is it, it was absolutely the start of my next phase in my career. And it was all about parents. But I knew very early on when I did that course, that I wanted to support new mothers in the workplace because there was so much there for supporting them in terms of the baby. So there was you know, weaning, breastfeeding, nutrition, childcare, all those supports were there and they're very much needed and valid. But there was nothing for their careers. It was almost like that side of themselves didn't exist anymore. And I thought, you know, I could do something here with this. So I played around with it for a while. I stayed working part time to see could it be a business. And it has been growing steadily over the last few years as more employers are thinking, we want to keep our staff, we want to keep our women after they've had their children because they're well into their 30s, their 40s. They're the kind of ages women in Ireland are having children. And that's when they're at their peak contribution in the workplace. They're really bringing an awful lot at that point. And for them to leave is unnecessary. And it's a real hit to the businesses. So what I do is I, I support them um, before, during and after their maternity leaves so that they come back feeling engaged, feeling happy, feeling motivated, feeling that their, their employers care um, and, and realise that they've gone through this huge personal milestone in their lives and they're just offering a little bit of support to them so that they can get back up and running on their careers. 
And does it involve you working with the employer or the employee? Like, how yeah. would I come across you if I was coming back from paternity leave or maternity leave? How would you, would you ever meet me or would you be talking to my boss about how to support me when I get back? Yeah. So I am essentially a staff benefit. So companies, I will talk to the company and they will say, um, we are going to offer your services to our working parent population. So when somebody has a baby, we will give them their your details and they will get in touch with you for one-to-one -one coaching sessions. I also support their manager. So trying to get the managers to understand what best practice looks like when you're managing somebody who has that time out um, and is becoming a parent to support them, to help them have a really positive experience, understand if they're asked for you know, flexible working or you know, the crash calls and they have to run back in the day when, when that was happening, you know, just to know how to respond in a, in, a, in a human way, in a way that treats them as a person and that keeps them feeling like this is a company where you, know, you can have a family and you can still have a really interesting career and you don't have to make one choice over the other. You can have both. It's interesting because I, I'm hearing a lot recent, well, over the last year, really, about people making a choice to to leave work. I know lots of people have lost their jobs, and that's completely different. But say, for example, as a psychotherapist, uh, in March, April last year, I saw many colleagues, maybe who were contemplating winding up anyway, just going, oh, this is, this this COVID thing is too much. I'm, I'm gone. Um, and so we lost a huge chunk of psychotherapy professionals in a time when it was so needed you know in that in that way in many ways the year that has been and what probably will end up being a year and a half or 18 months that will become covid it will almost be like all of us were on some degree of leave you know it, i know we're still working right the right through but what do you uh, what do you say or think about the mass return of say for example 40 people back into an office because you know we get used to this new abnormal even though it's not healthy for us and well I don't think it is that's personal but um from the point of view of collegiality and meeting people and the water cooler moments and all those things that that, that we talk about being so important we haven't had them so we're going to is there going to be a readjustment for people even uh, similar to maybe somebody who's been I'm just thinking about the parallels between maternity leave and this is are quite similar. You know, you're at home with a kid, and I, I remember speaking. To, I speak to a lot of people about the return from maternity leave, and they talk about. I'm really excited to just talk to grown ups. You know, I just, you know, can't wait for that bit. Yeah. Um, and but maybe a bit self conscious that have I, you know, will I be able to do it? Or you know, I haven't. I've, I've been talking to a six month old for so long. <laughs> it's gotten, you know, the. I'm afraid that when I'm in the office, I'll start baby talk or I'll, you know, goo goo gaga or whatever it might be. Is that, I'm guessing that anxiety is around for people. Like, is it something we're thinking about or have thought about? Or are we still in a kind of a firefighting crisis management thing about just getting there? We haven't actually planned for what that's going to look like. Yeah, you know, it, I know businesses are preparing and preparing and preparing, but it's a moving feast and these dates keep getting pushed back and so much more happens in between. So what they prepared for last summer is not the same anymore. It is, you know, we've had a different experience, you know, another few months down the road with it. What I think this is going to do is, you know, 
new mothers have led the way in terms of asking for flexibility, in terms of asking to work from home. And that has been a battle. And they have had the, the consequences of asking for those things and doing those things so that they can try and have a career and a family. You know, they don't get chosen for the best projects or their career does stall as a result of that ask. What I feel is one of the upsides of this awful pandemic is that people will start behaving flexibly in the workplace. I, I think very few people will go back to full-time in the office and or full-time at home. I think mostly balance works. For whatever you're looking for in life, mostly balance works. So a couple of days at home, a couple of days in the office, why would that not work? And we have proven with this incredible experiment that for a lot of companies and types of roles that are out there, you can absolutely do it in lots of different locations. I think people do miss camaraderie, collaboration. Technology can take it to you know, a certain extent, but people want to be with their colleagues in the same room. And I think that's never going to go away. Um, so I think what will happen is, you know, shock horror, balance will be the answer and it won't be just women or just mothers asking for it. It will be everybody, whether you're, you know, whatever gender, parent or non-parent, companies will say this works. This works to allow our staff to take responsibility for what works for them with what else they have in their life at the time and to still get good results. And I think that's just leading to happier employees. Like all the research is showing that most people want that bit of balance. They don't want to be in the office all the time and they don't want to be at home all the time. And they want to be back with adults and, and not to have to lock their, their bedroom door, you know, when they're trying to have a meeting or tell their kids to, to get off the Wi-Fi. Balance is, is always going to be the answer because most people just, just want that. And I love that experiment phrase because that's what it has been, you know, in terms of experiment is the, where you don't know the outcome. So by nature, the definition. But it's fascinating because I'm listening to you talk there and I'm going, yeah, that makes sense because... We deliberated about the pros and cons of online therapy for about six years in my workplace and was cautioned about the safety elements and, you know, what if somebody was in a bad way or we couldn't access them. It literally happened in a fortnight when by the time you know, all those committees and discussions that we've had over the years kind of, you know, needs must, we have to do it. And, and again, the idea of it was a massive experiment, I think, in trust, you know, because there's this kind of paranoia that if I allow someone to work from home, they're going to be doing their patio and nobody's going to get a thing done. And uh, and I think understandably from an employer's point of view, but what we have, and I was part of a Mental Health Ireland study where we, we looked at parents' homeschooling experiences of, you know, work and everything else. Nobody hardly ever rated that their, their work performance had dropped in their time when they're at home. They actually probably found the opposite, that they're working longer, you know, in terms of spread out. They were probably a little bit more paranoid. You know, you're more likely to respond to an email because you think your employer might think you're doing your patio. Do you know what I mean? And so there's a kind of a, the, you know, with more freedom came less boundaries. But it was about, I think the majority of people were, more endeavorous and hardworking from home than they maybe were thought to be. You know, it's a bit like, you know, it, it, it's the, the, the almost the idea of the free bar, you know, if you <laughs> offer it, you know, people are so self-conscious that they've gone up twice already. They tend to drink less. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, uh, or, or I think it was one of the, the online, one of the IT companies brought in unlimited annual leave, mm. you know, um, and 
turns out you know, hardly anyone took it because you know of that the when you put it onto the user as to be the self-regulator, we can yeah. tend sometimes overdo it. But I think you're absolutely right. I think the experiment of 2021 will live in our lives for a long time. But uh, and and I know you listen to the podcast, so you'd be familiar with my four to seven principle, which yeah. I think is a, a, a gospel for life. But it is the balance is key. I mean, it's just when you find yourself in that extremes in anything, that's when you're going to start to struggle and. Uh, and I think you're right. I think workplaces, employees, employers, it's right about the middle. You know, it is a race to the middle. And I think, you know, I think that's counterintuitive to the spirit of capitalism in some mm-hmm. respects, you know, that, that actual investment works. But again, my, my friend and colleague, Jim Lucy, will say, you know, there's no health without mental health, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of absenteeism, in terms of mm-hmm. loss of performance. You know, I, I and you talk about, you know, I was listening to you again, I was thinking about, you know, when I was... When I had my first, when my first lad was born, you know, he was colic. And I can remember driving up and down the Nace Road at 5 a.m. in the morning, trying to just get him to sleep. And then being sitting in an office at 20 to 8, listening to a handover and literally swaying with the tiredness and (laughs) thinking, oh, my God. You know, and, you know, for parents who have children with additional needs or people who have, you know, extra parenting requirement there really isn't any accommodation within the workplace for that no. individual set of circumstances. Do you know what I mean? And uh, I think, I, yeah, I think you're onto something here, Sarah. And I think from the point of view of um, it really makes sense when you can, and I think 2021 maybe has brought it more into the conversation than ever before because of the, the nature of the experiment and probably what we're finding are the results of it. Would you think? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, very specifically with, with, with the women I'm working with, somebody said to me, it's easier to throw up in my own bathroom than to throw up in the office bathroom. And, and, and that's the reality of it. You know, if you're in the early stages of pregnancy, you're not necessarily feeling so good. Or if you're in the later stages and you don't have to get yourself on a bus or on a dart, you know, that's that's time you have back. That's energy you have back to actually focus on doing the job. It, it, it really does make a lot of sense. I think when you hire well, you trust your staff. And the companies that were that little bit further along, say, in terms of flexible working, home working, you know, they had those structures set up. They have had a much easier time of it. And they have been spending their time checking in on mental health, well-being days, different supports, be it physical, be it mental to make sure that they have that connection with their staff. But I think when you just, when you take the complexity out of it, people just like a bit of balance and they like a bit of trust. And I think if we can just latch on to those elements, then that's something we could really reimagine what work looks like, what life looks like, that you could live in a different county, that not everybody has to be clustered around the big cities to, to work in a you know, professional role, that they could be elsewhere. And that has to be better for, for everybody. Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, we better get on to some parenting questions. <laughs> it's a fascinating topic, and I just find it really, it really is interesting to chat about because, and it, it's on that last point that you made about, and again, I apologize if this is contrary to your own belief system, but I believe that from a workplace well-being point of view, the most important thing is culture. You know, I think people say, oh, well, we'll do yoga at lunchtime and that'll sort out everybody. 
But if you're doing yoga at lunchtime and you know that when you get back to your desk at two o'clock, there's going to be this massive demand to have something yeah. in for half too. So we can't give well-being with one hand and remove it with the other. Do you know what I mean? From the point of view, the culture of the atmosphere of the the employment place and the the employer and the company and the people has to be one that champions you know if you're struggling i'll give you a dig out if you want a hand i'm here you know there's there has to be and i don't mean to be contrite with it but a kind of a a family element to it or a kind of you know that that's how teams work and i just think maybe investing more in culture than you know, oh, we've got a well-being fruit basket for everyone today. And, you know, that's our ticked off our list. That's our outreach thing done. And I don't think that workplace well-being is created through uh, an away day or a yoga at lunchtime. I think it's created in the culture. And and maybe, I don't know, maybe that's something you're promoting, the kind of well-being initiatives, which I don't, I'm not dismissing them, but... No, everything speaks to culture. If you you don't... It's like if the policy says one thing, but the actions say something else, then people can read through that very, very quickly. Um, you know, my husband's company is, is very family friendly. They're, they're Canadian. And that really helped actually with because um, they come online at lunchtime, our time. So he had a lot of give in the mornings to help with homeschooling and things like that. So that was really good. But they said, um, what, what do you guys need? And the staff said, can we have like meeting free time? Can time in the day be blocked out of the meeting so we can actually do some some of the work, you know, or, or attend to kids or whatever it might be? And they said, yeah, you know, they, they listened to their staff and they did something really practical. They did lots of other things as well. But I think that that speaks to their culture. They really want people to be happy because happy people perform. It's, an, it's kind of a no brainer. And I think, yeah, and I, I again, I think in everything that we talk about, it, no matter how distant the topic, it comes down to a kind of a parenting philosophy. Like if yeah. you are the employer, like you were talking there, and I was just thinking, what Sarah's describing there is the more I listen, the less you shout. Do you know what I mean? From the point of view, which is a parenting technique from the point of view of, it's about trust, it's not about control. It's about values, it's not about rules. You know, it's a, if you're saying one thing and doing the other it's not going to work. Um, yeah, I think it's so much of it comes back down to that, the model of parenting, which is really what people are tuning into this podcast for. So we better <laughs> keep back on. Um, we have a few questions and I, I want to thank you, Sarah. You did a shout out and we got a, a great response from people who, who follow you, who, who came in with some questions here, which is great. We might, uh, we'll paraphrase them because some of the questions are kind of long, but we'll just kind of give the gist of it to listeners. I might crack off with the first one and then we'll swap over and, and see how that goes. So the first question is, hi there, a friend of mine told me about this podcast. My problem is with my 11-year-old daughter. Seems to be developed a lot of anxiety. She worries about everything. The biggest worry recently, she's ha- is afraid of having children. And then I asked her why. She said she was worried about how the baby got into her tummy. She talked about it and explained the facts and gave her a book. To help her understand it, but since then she's worrying even more and can't get it out of her head. Apart from that, she's also worried about being kidnapped and has also mentioned that she's worried that something would happen to her if she was kidnapped, basically that she would be made to have sex uh, or be raped. Uh, she's very vibrant, 11-year-old, probably older than her years. And most of the time is happy, but at night she worries a lot and she uh, wants to sleep with her older sister and is worrying if anything, uh, she, the parent here is worrying, is there anything I can do to help her? We've tried to reassure her, but to no avail. Okay, now, the 
I wouldn't get overly distressed about the content of this worry because I don't believe it to be about the content. Uh, uh, you have to imagine that in anxiety, our anxiety gets displaced from its origin to something that can be expressed. So basically what that means is what I'm saying I'm worried about may not indeed be what I am worried about. So the idea of the, the you can get into the reassurance of pregnancies and babies and safety and everything else. And although that might be gratifying and make her feel a little bit reassured in that moment, it's not going to have a lasting effect because essentially what you're doing here is reassurance is pouring water into a leaking bucket. You know, this is coming out the other side. So for me, let's not focus here on the problem, but the cause of the problem, okay, which I would imagine is a much more generic anxiety. And for an 11-year-old, these are these are the triggers that she's talking about. They're not the causes. So from the point of view of, you know, somebody might say, uh, I always remember a parent coming into, uh, coming into me one day and said, you know, my daughter has an eating disorder and it happened because a coach told her, you know, you sit in the front because you are the biggest and that caused her eating disorder. And I would say maybe that triggered it, but it didn't cause it because that coach could say that to 100 girls and not they, they all wouldn't develop eating disorder. So there's something that's going on before that happens. So maybe this girl saw a TV show or something around pregnancy, but there's something going on before that, which is where I think let's not focus on the signpost to the problem. Let's look at where the signpost is pointing. And so her issue here is visibility, really. She wants you to be around her at nighttime when she feels unsafe. She wants you to engage in conversation. She wants you to be reassuring her. But my guess is that if the reassurance isn't having any impact, then what she's talking about is not the cause of the anxiety. It's just a form of communication. It's an avenue for that to be talked about. So this is the symptom, not the problem, if that makes any sense. So I think we you take the worry away from the focus and try and find out what else is going on. There's something else going on. She's an 11-year-old, so... She's had a rough year, the same as all of us. You know, there's lots of adjustments, lots of uncertainty. There's lots of unknowns. And children maybe of that age can't conceptualize what it feels like to live in a time of uncertainty. So they want you to remind them that they're safe. Safe from imposters, from predators, from all these things, from intrusions. Um, and this is what she's doing. She's seeking you to remind her that she's safe. But it is far easier to worry about something that's highly unlikely to happen than it is to worry about something that is impending or imminent. So oftentimes what anxiety does is it creates a fantasy worry that we worry about something that is unlikely or you know most likely not going to happen because it allows us to worry about something that isn't a, an imminent threat or isn't a risk. So I would much prefer to be worried about being kidnapped than I would about going back to school next week into the COVID things and the sanitizing and my anxious teacher and my anxious pals and not knowing whether my birthday party in the end of April is going to happen or not and not going to know whether granny's actually going to get sick and all these talk of vaccinations and numbers. And that's all too big. That's big stuff. I'll just say I'm worried about being kidnapped instead. And so... I remember that I'm reminding people I'm still here, I'm getting reassurance, I'm getting the arm around the shoulder, I'm getting what I need, but I'm not getting it about what is the origin of it is, if that makes sense. And so I would remove the conversation from this almost entirely. I would say, you know, continue to reassure her to an extent about this, but this is the signpost to the problem, it isn't the problem. And that would be my advice on this one. Does that make sense, Sarah? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I'm just really happy that they're talking about it, that this child is is talking to her mum and her, her mum is, is talking back and, and not dismissing it. So, you know, that's that's a starting point, at least that that dialogue is there. And I think I would say this all the time. The fact that you contacted a podcast to try and find an answer to this problem in and of itself is proof mm-hmm. that your parenting endeavour is on point. You know, this is not anything... I don't think this is anything that this parent is not doing. You know what I mean? I just think um, your child is pointing you in a direction to where she's saying, uh, this is where the pain is, and you're concentrating on that. But perhaps the pain is elsewhere. Uh, and yeah. it might do to to reassure her that no matter what it is, you'll manage it, and you've got it. Um, but the the this is, I think mum is doing a great job here. I absolutely do. Um, so I hope that was helpful. The second question we have is, I have a little girl who's five. She's in junior infants. Just wondering if I can get some advice on how to help her when other kids say they don't want to play with her. She has been friends with uh, two others since the start of the year, but recently they're telling her that they don't want to play. She's really hurt by it and has been crying at bedtimes about it. It happened in play school last year too, where she thought she was best friends with a girl who was repeatedly telling her to go away one minute and then great friends the next. I know kids can be mean, but I'd love to help her with this. And I'm worried what if this keeps happening. I've spoken to the teacher who says she's sociable. She wants to play. She's very kind. Uh, I don't feel like it was something that she did or anything to hurt these kids, but it's really upsetting. Uh, and, you know, she's quiet in school, which is not like her. How do I do help her develop resilience and learn to make newer, nicer friends who won't keep hurting her? This is a really common question. And it's really heartbreaking. I think as a parent, when you see your child being rejected by a peer group, you know, there's that vulnerability and you feel, oh my God, I just want to fix this. And I want this not to happen. Some of this is utterly normative from the point of view of schoolyard politics are harsh. They are harder than any employee work life. You know, they will say to you, I don't like you. You're not going, you're not my friend today. But it's so random, and I oftentimes think about the episode we did with Laura Mahoney, where she described when she was in a friendship with three, and they would just decide randomly, we're going to be odd with you today because you know, we don't like the look of you, and we won't be that way tomorrow. And so it's really difficult to try and create reason around something that is utterly unreasonable. And so I don't believe that the effort needs to be in trying to manage or control the dynamic but really trying to manage and control your child's reaction and response to it. Do you know what I mean? So this is really about working on your own child's lens with which she sees the world, other than um, maybe trying to work. I, of course, you need to, the teachers to keep an eye on this, and, and obviously it needs to be, and that's really hard in COVID times because we have to you know, wave at teachers from 20 yards and we can't have a word in their ear and all that sort of stuff. But the idea that this is about your child saying, seeing her own value, seeing her own worth. You know, the, the, the greatest crisis that I see is a, a deficit in self-value, self-worth, and self-belief. And that's not always equatable with confidence. So we have loads of children in, in, in the world at the moment who are uberly confident but have no self-worth. And the difference in what we're, everything we're doing is focusing on the confidence. It's all outcome-based. And what did you get? And what do you score? And how many friends do you have? Nothing is about the internal variable, which is how loyal are you? How kind are you? And there's no medals or rewards or prizes for that. So children are buying into a, a model of performance, which means that all their energies are into confidence building. 
and not into self-worth, self-belief and self-value building. And if we want to get ahead of the curve, and in, in the case of this parent, it's really about investing in your own child's self-worth and self-belief and self-value. And the idea that, you know, what is resilience? Okay, and that's the questions we get asked all the time. And I want, if I was to use an example of, let's imagine that there's two girls and they're standing at their school lockers and one is called Mary and one is called Anne and their friend Sophie walks past and Mary goes, hi, Sophie, and Sophie ignores her. And Anne says, hi, Sophie, and Sophie ignores her. So Mary spends the whole day wondering what she's done to upset Sophie. What did I say? What did I do? And going back and, and really panicking and spending nine hours in a state. Anne, on the other hand, says, screw you, Sophie, and gets on with her day. And the difference between Mary and Anne is not confidence. It's sense of self. It's I know who I am. I know what I did. And if you have a problem, that's your issue. Not my drama. Not my monkeys. You know what I mean? From the point of view. And that is so valuable to have that sense of self. Resilience is not being able to take on adversity and being able to withdraw, withstand trauma. It's about having a relationship with yourself that's authentic, is real, and is solid. You know what I mean? The most important relationship you'll ever have in your life is the one you have with yourself. And the temptation here is to get overly focused on trying to get this child to have better relationships with other people without having a good relationship with herself. And I think that's the focus here is that you are enough these guys are the problem. You know, their randomness is something that you can't control, but you can control how you react and respond to it. So I wouldn't go begging and pleading them to be your friend. You know, leave them off. Find something else. You, you have to be in control of your own variables. And you can't control what other people do. You can only control what you respond to and how that reacts and, and how much you let it to impact you. Do you mean that? And I think that's the, the one thing we don't understand is we have some control over the permeation of trauma or upset, how much we let it in, you know, is crucially important to how much impact it has on us. So I would be working on her own self-worth, self-belief and self-value, as opposed to necessarily being about trying to, to manage the dynamic in this sense. Does that make sense, Sarah? It, it does. And, and, you know, this is a tough group. They, they're junior infants and they've had very little time in school being junior infants. So even getting a run at socialising, being with the pals, there's been no play dates this year. You know, they've had a hard time of it. And I think, you know, you're spot on there in terms of that resilience piece. You know, how is that showing up at home? What values are being rewarded? What way are they with each other? That, you know, kindness is what we're looking for here. Um, you know, it's not about the popularity contents as much as people always want lots of friends. You know, getting that inner self-belief as high as possible is so important but I really feel for this cohort of kids um you know my daughter hasn't had a full run at one school year yet she's had an, an interrupted junior infant and an interrupted senior infant and it's not easy on them you know and maybe there's, there's options to maybe have some online stuff and maybe that's access to little kids without the pressure of friendship um maybe that's something that mum could you know could think about but I think you know time as well will help this when she gets you know more access to her friends and what you're absolutely spot on. See, these are the disruptions, these are the invisible effects of COVID, in, the, in a sense, on children, because you won't see the impact of this until they're back in the social sphere. You know, so the d difficulties won't arise when they're at home with you. You know, so I have so many parents who get in contact and say, my child is loving lockdown. And, you know, they're absolutely great and it's fantastic. 
Unfortunately, that's that may be avoidance, not resilience that they're showing. Do you know what I mean? From the point of view, it's oftentimes when children are really bored that we see the difficulties. Um, and, you know, I don't know whether you saw, I worked on a, a TV show last year called Big School, where we did the kind of observations of that group that we're talking about, these senior infants. I have a, my own son is in that group and the disruption there has been phenomenal. You know, in terms of they're going to go into first class with about six months of school yeah. under their belt, you know, and uh, and what you'll see from the theme of the questions coming in here, so many of them are about emotional regulation and socialization. And that's the social development piece. That is where children learn is in the playground, watching others. You have to practice it. You know, yeah. the, there's no way that the theory and even the online stuff, and I, I appreciate that is better than nothing, absolutely. But it's a very passive medium. Do you know what mm. I mean? If you're getting an online Zoom class in second mm. senior infants, you're not interacting with your peers. You know, you're listening to your teacher, which is great. Mm. But from the point of view of how do I know how much is enough? You do that by trial and error. You know, yeah. so the, the child of that age is learning regulation by mistake. You know, where is the line here? Oh, there, I just crossed it. That's the line right there. And I'll remember that for the next time. But if you don't have an opportunity to cross the line then you won't know where it is and it, it'll come up i think in another question down the way but emotional dysregulation and that social awkwardness or unfamiliarity is uh hugely problematic over the last year especially for and i say it all the time you know we all have a template of pre-covid coping but the five-year-old doesn't this is the way they're seeing the world for the first time. Mm -hmm. So mask wearing, jumping out of people's way, you know, sanitizing two meters distant. That's the template for the world that they're getting. That's not, they don't have a pre-COVID benchmark or baseline to go, oh, I just have to be like this for now. This is the way it is. And so when we can hug and touch and shake hands and all that sort of stuff, they'll be learning that for the first time too, which is... Um, it's a worry, Sarah, and I know your own kids are around that age, and I think mm -hmm. it is, when I speak about it, about my own lad, there's a volatility or a, a lack of awareness or lack of practice mm -hmm. in them a little bit at that age, uh, that the sooner they can back, get, because this cannot be taught in the, in the therapy room, and it actually can't be taught by a parent. It is the laboratory of life that teaches about friendships. You know what I mean? That's, Everything that's, as a we parent, about... that's a very hard thing to let go, that, that it's not you that can teach it, that you have to allow them the space to, to know that not everyone is going to like them, but that they will find their little tribe, you know, um, but that's really hard to let go. Absolutely. So, and it's that idea of, you know, the, 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 element, the element of control having to be you know, given over to this reckless band of five-year-olds to teach my child. This is ridiculous. Like, but, and again, I would say to you, Sarah, if you think about your own experiences of growing up, your social savvy and all that sort of stuff, the percentage of that that was given to you by parents, probably not that much. You know, watching the cool kids and watching the other people make mistakes and watching your own mistakes and learning from that and you know, that's the laboratory of life. And, and the, yeah. the school of hard knocks is a very effective teacher in terms yeah. of, you know, if we're able to listen and learn. But um, I fully appreciate from a parenting perspective, that's dreadful. And you're the, the, all the parents are hanging on my piece of advice that uh, that's going to say, well, if you're uncomfortable with that, you can do this instead. And I don't have that. You know, this is 
the life one is going to be yeah. the teacher on this. But, but yeah. um, I, I would see more momentum, more time in school, more normality as ironing out a lot of those creases, but just focus on yeah. herself and not on other people. Yeah. And the um, teacher did say that she's sociable. So, you know, as you say, as the parents, we don't really have access at the moment to kids' friendships, but the teacher is saying she's sociable. So she, she's able to do it. And it's so funny because we were when we did big school, and I don't go back to that, but that fly in the wall where we could listen to the conversations of junior infants having the, like, you don't know. Like, my junior infants tell me nothing about how the day was. You know, what did you do today? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah, you know, and most of it's like, I remember my own son used to go, I was the only one in today, nobody came in, and all this kind of pure nonsense and stuff. But the idea that we could get that fly in the wall, there's immense complexities to the friendships and the agreements and the... The BFFs today, you know. Territorialism was phenomenal. Mm. But uh, Mm. yeah, that that has to be learned in that space. Uh, And and, uh, I urge us all to try and get back to that as QAP, you know, as quickly as we can. Another question on question three... Uh, I might do this one, then you can do the next couple after that, if that's mm-hmm. right, Sarah. So, sure. can you give me vi- guidance? Only recently came upon your podcasts, and they're life saving. Oh, thank you very much. I have a 12 year old boy for years who struggled with soiling. Uh, I've gone down the gastro medical route to Crumlin, and they've ruled out any medical issues over the years. I've tried homeopathy, reflexology, bioenergy, lots of things. Uh, they tried reward charts, goal setting, diary keeping, only to always revert back. Uh, he used to meditate when he was younger, but now he sees it as uncool. Um, he's coming a teenager, and she said, Mum does a little bit of yoga, but Dad doesn't, and he kind of is taking Dad's lead on this a little bit. Uh, told by every person I've ever brought him to that his head is full. He's a warrior. He's so smart in school, but rushes everything and gets nowhere. Uh, his, if you send him upstairs for his shoes, he's back down. He's forgotten what he went up for. Uh, he doesn't follow instruction uh, and will oftentimes forget. He doesn't take enough time to actually go to the toilet. Uh, and I can't seem to get through to him the importance of it. Uh, sick of my own voice at this stage and really worried about him. Uh, we tried time and time again to calm chats and conversations about the importance of hygiene. He hides his soiled underwear and uh, upsets me so much uh, that I can no longer hide it. I'm exhausted and I'm worried. I'm wondering if you've ever come across this and if you have any advice on how to get him to slow down, take him time for himself and look after himself. The irony is of asking him to slow down is funny as he's so slow doing everything else. And thank you so much. So, yes, I mean, the, the, the technical name for this is encapresis, which is a condition where young people can kind of soil their, their underwear or they will use the bathroom, not in the bathroom. They'll go to the toilet around the place and things like that. And it's, it's most, most notably a psychological and emotional condition rather than a physical one. So all physical investigations into constipation and bowel function and all have been ruled out and there's no evidence of a kind of anatomical reason for this. So this is a, a an interesting behaviour. And I, I very rarely say this, but I think this is a boy who does need some help. And I think I'd be going for help right now. The idea of his self-consciousness about hiding the underwear and stuff like that, I would have huge worries about that impact on his self-worth, self-belief and self-value. And so... That's a, that's a sign that he's struggling and he needs some help with it. He's very self-conscious and he's getting that little bit older now, heading into teenage years. It really would do to help. So what do we do? I mean, again, in younger children, and I've worked in Crumlin Hospital and they, you know, they had the, the Winnie the Pooh program there and it was a fantastic issue around helping children to manage uh, soiling issues and toiling issues. 
if you can bear with me, I'm just going to go into some of the kind of analytical beliefs around this. So the idea is that our bowel function is something that as a baby or an infant is something that one of the first things we have control over, you know what I mean? So, so when a child does it, when you're toilet training a child or potty training them and they do the first poo in the toilet, we clap and we cheer and we delight it. And it's almost like that it's a present for you. Do you know what I mean? That you're delighted with it. But the, the child who's highly anxious go, sees achievement as pressure. And they're going, oh, my God, I, I, I'm not going to be able to do that right again. Or what if I get it wrong? Or I was a bit uncomfortable with that kind of praise or whatever it might be. And when we describe people, oh, they're very anal. They're anally retentive. There's that kind of thing of holding on to things, to control. They don't want mess. Or they don't want difficulty. And oftentimes the holding creates an issue around constipation or it can cause tummy pains and discomfort. Uh, obviously imp impacts on mood as well. And then the child has such a mass that they find it so sore to pass that they're afraid of the pain of that. And that creates an, another issue. The soiling issue is almost a, a little bit more or less understood, maybe from the point of view. It's almost like uh, I have a gift for you, but I don't want to give it to you. Or, you know, there's a kind of a sense of a, a confusion around that phase of development where perhaps the child is is unsure or highly anxious around the mess from the point of view of we underestimate the impact of toileting for children it's a hugely important part because we we place so much reward on being able to do it and you know you have to get it done before we go to montessori and, you, yeah. and so the pressures of children are not immune to the parental atmosphere of pressure of getting that right or getting that wrong and they have to negotiate that phase and some of them struggle around that negotiation and in many ways it can go back to that as a kind of a coping strategy so what I would say to you is almost you you almost have to re potty train him in some respects, and I mean that in the nicest possible way. But what I would be saying is incentive based issues around you know you spend you know, you have to spend a half an hour on the toilet three times a day. Right? That's the deal, right? And when you do that, you will get something in return for that. And it's not about whether you go to the toilet or not; it's whether you put in the time. So it's really about rewarding effort, not outcome. You know, I just want you to do this. And if you do this for me, I'd be very grateful because this just shows me that you're willing to try to get on top of this or to trying to solve this. Um, and when you have to stay in the bathroom for 15 minutes or whatever it might be, there's no option. You're not rushing off to do anything else. Do you know what I mean? So that time is set aside. And the reward of doing it has to outweigh the, the rushed activity that they're trying to get back to. Do you know what I mean? And I think maybe through this time at the moment, it's probably a good time to do that where you are at home and all that sort of stuff. But it's really trying to retrain, re-incentivize and, and readdress the relationship between using the bathroom and going to the toilet and our emotional state uh, and trying to re-reward re him a little bit, but much more about effort, not outcome. And again, similar to what we just described, that's what I would do. I would uh, make an agreement, sit down, he's 12, you can have a conversation with him saying, we have to get to the bottom of this. And we're going to do, you know, 15 minutes, three times a day, morning, afternoon, evening. Uh, and all I want you to do is sit in the toilet for those three times. And we'll get into the rhythm of it and we'll get into the reward of it. And you'd make the reward fairly enticing, if that's possible, because uh, it's a big deal. You know, 45 minutes a day you're asking him to do, which to a child is endless. A 12-year-old is even more endless. But yeah, reinforce that. If I was trying that over a couple of months and it wasn't working, I'd go and get some help, uh, some psychological input for him just to, to really support him going into teenage years. Uh, I would really like to get to the bottom of that rather than him carry that into the teenagers. Does that make sense? Sir? Yeah, 
absolutely and and my heart goes out to this mother and I'm looking at the list of things that she has tried with him so far like she is doing her absolute level best and just a bit of recognition for her that she, she is she is managing this as best she can and hopefully the advice you're giving her will move them along a little bit uh, the fact they can't follow instructions is there any connection there is there any link to that yeah, I mean, again, very difficult to get into any sort of diagnostic issue on this kind of format because you're getting a, a tokenistic piece around that. And it's really interesting. I got an email from somebody recently who who had who was a very a big fan of the podcast, but she had said that a child that one of the questions that came up was very like her daughter who had autistic spectrum disorder, and she wondered should I have advised the parents that there may be early signs of autistic spectrum disorder. I tend to not pathologize as a means of, especially early child with two sentences, right? Now, if a child is going up and they're forgetting instructions of things upstairs, your my red flags would go ADHD, right? There's something around attention deficit disorder not being able to follow. There's multiple reasons why children might forget. It might be dyspraxia. They might have an issue with audio processing. They might have an issue with cognition, which may not be the ADHD. The ADHD is the end of the road diagnosis, but there are all these components that may explain that behavior as well. So rather than, you know, if I was on this podcasting labeling every two-year-old with ASD and every five-year-old with ADHD, there would be an equally disgruntled response from people saying, you know, you're overly labeling people. And so it's one that you have to tread carefully with. But yes, those are signs of, you know, the, the forgetfulness, the disorganization uh, are would be pointers towards an ADHD but uh, or ADD even. So they don't even have to have the hyperactivity. Um, and in girls, you know, that's hugely missed. We, we diagnose more kids, girls with ADD at 14, 15 years of age who have been missed because they're, oh, she's just a dreamer. And actually, no, she's really struggling with it. And so, yeah, I, I, there's reasons there to, to kind of investigate that further. But... I always have to kind of resist the temptation to pathologize early on. But yes, they are certainly contributing factors. But a thorough uh, and comprehensive assessment would need to be done to rule out whether that's caused by something else. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's fair enough. But I, I think it's interesting that the mother is making a connection somewhere there herself. So maybe there's something in it for her. Yeah, no, I think I think there's the, these that may indeed be part of it. And if there is an attention deficit, the, 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 the three 15 minutes a, a day is not going to work, you know what I mean? Because there's an underlying issue that's not allowing the child to do it. You know, if somebody comes to me and they're very biologically depressed, Sarah, so they're not sleeping, they're not concentrating, their motivation is shot. Like all the hours in therapy in the world is not going to be able to work there because they have to get their sleep right. And they have to be like, they're, you're setting them up to fail because you're asking them to do things in therapy that they literally don't have the physical capacity to do. And so from that point of view, um, you have to say, well, let's ditch the therapy first. We have to get this biology right. And then, you know, without the foundations, we're not going to be able to build this house. And so if there's concentration issues here, all the, 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 the kind of toileting procedures may be building something on a, a foundationless exercise. So when you, but in doing it, uh, you may, that might point to that a little bit more and say, actually, the core issue here is concentration. Does that make sense? Okay, absolutely, yeah. Uh, do you want to go with the next one there, Sarah? Sure. Uh, hi, Coleman. I have four kids under 12 and finding your podcast and articles so helpful. You mentioned on today's podcast about making school choices for kids um, and how to pick the school for them for the child. 
I'm finding my own anxiety is high over the last few weeks as I'm looking into making correct choices for secondary for my son and just wondering, have you any articles or podcasts which talk about this in more detail? Okay, well, I don't, uh, uh, because I think it's one of the most under-talked about issues, right? So when it comes to this, in the, the listeners' questions with um, Alison Kaspersky, she talked about this because her little girl was starting primary school and they were trying to work out, this would be interesting for you, uh, Sarah, she was trying to work out whether I should go for a school near home or near work. Um, you know, and, and obviously kind of spent 40 hours there and, you know, if they're sick, how do I get out or is it better to be near the house and all this sort of stuff. Um, and so geography becomes a really important part of the choosing point. Obviously, places available become a, a factor. Uh, if you've siblings in that school, that's a factor. If you went to that school as a parent, that's a factor. If, you know, uh, but are they the priority lists? that are correct in terms of choosing a school for a child. And I don't think they are. And I always remember my very good friend and colleague, Sean Ryan, who's a teacher for years, saying to me, pick the school to fit the child. Don't make the child fit the school. So from the point of view of, especially in secondary, I think, where there is probably more siloed identities to certain schools, that's a very sporty school, that's a very academic school, that's a very you know supportive school, whatever it might be. Think about your child's fit with that environment. It's not about, oh, it's just down the road, so I'll send my non-sporty child to the sporty school because mm -hmm. the convenience of access may bite you in the arse when it comes to the inconvenience of the fit. Do you know what I mean? And just because my his sister goes to that school, we had to send him there too. Again, not necessarily. If they're two very different children, and again... I'm not underestimating, and people are going to say, but the drop-offs and the pickups and the inconvenience, I get all that. But for me, it is about the fit is going to be the most important part of that child's experience. And that's going to be, and again, where we, we sacrifice fit for convenience, geography, status, legacy, whatever it might be. I just see that failing all the time because um, you know, the, the school environment is so narrow. The, that there's a, a very, very limited amount of wiggle room for a child to find, you know, it's a very one-way system. But there are different variants of the different one-way system, the sporty, the academic, the musical, the, but the culture of the school, the culture of the value system behind it. Is it, you know, why would you send your child who's dyslexia and all that sort of stuff to a Gale school? Because you want them to speak Irish, you know, or... Why would you send a child with learning needs to, you know, the most academically pressured schools? So they're in sixth year and they're all these medicines and lawyers and everything else at 600 points. And they're feeling utterly, you know, incapable or, you know, inferior to all of those people. You know, why would you send a, a really academic child to a really sporty school where they're not being valued? I mean, I just think as parents, we need to kind of park our own notions and it's a bit like you know um i remember when i was when my children were small i used to buy the baby foods with what i liked so i was like oh i'm not getting lamb uh you know and it was kind of <laughs> what a ridiculous thing to do the child might like it you know just because i don't like it doesn't mean and uh yeah I, I think we do that with schools as well we send the child to where we would like them to fit in rather than where we anticipate they will um, and I do think there's there's a benefit in, in going back to the drawing board a little bit with that. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, um, so we're at that point where we're thinking ahead. Um, and my husband is from Castlebar and he said, sure, you just send them to the local school. Like he doesn't get the Dublin thing of there's different choices and you've no idea what you'll even get into. Like it's a very complicated system. Um, and, and I've heard other people who, who aren't from Ireland, like really struggling to navigate secondary school. Like how do you actually even go through the application processes and the politics of how you actually get into these, you know, different types of schools? Um, I'm, we're, we're looking at like, would mixed schools be better outcomes for children in general? Um, and that there are so few options of mixed secondary schools in Dublin. I don't know if you have a, a view on single sex versus mixed, or does that make a difference? Yeah, I mean, there, there's generalizations that uh, that boys do better in mixed schools and girls do better in single sex schools, right? So from the point of view, academically. I don't think we've any measurement of socially how they do uh, from that yeah. point of view. Um, the, the issue around, for me personally, I think single-sex schools are utterly uh, unnatural. Uh, I don't think they prepare you for a single-sex world. I think where we have huge concerns around consent, respect, you know, the, the, the worries about our exposures to pornography and all that sort of stuff is much greater cause for us to integrate the genders and the sexes much, much earlier on. Uh, so personally, I am a, and I went to single sex school, so I'm not uh, speaking out of turn on that without any experience of it. But I, I think the mixed option for me, makes much more sense from a human point of view. That and that's paying no attention to grades or academia or achievement, and pays no attention to in South County Dublin maybe the connections that you'd make or the supportive structures, or you know because you'd be a judge's son would be in your class <laughs> or whatever the case may be, which are things that people have to consider and are yeah. you know may not admit, but they are absolutely defining characteristics and choices. For me, it gets back to fit normality and more representative exposure to the outside world and the real world. And I think the real world is an integrative gender place. So why would you separate them? Does that make sense? It does. And it's very reassuring for me personally to hear that because that's the way we're leaning. Um, and I'm just thinking of all the women that I work with and how self-belief and lack of confidence comes up so often. And you know, you hear the little boys on the Zoom calls and, and I know you're, you know, you're seeing the difference between confidence and self-belief, but they just are generally more outgoing and out there and having a go more. And I, and I think it's really important to keep them all together so that they normalize each other, you know, that they are, it is normal to be around boys, it's normal to be around girls. And if, if we want to shift culture to be more equitable, more inclusive, more integrated, well, then that's the way you start. You know, from the point start with our children. Like, yeah, the, the idea that, you know, if we want, you know, boys to be a certain way and girls to be a certain way, well, separate them and teach them differently. Then that's the way. I think that's counterintuitive to what we want now. And so put them together, teach them together. But the value system has to respect both. You know, there's no point in a mixed school where all the boys' sports are hugely supported and the girls' GA team go and there's four people at the sideline, three of which yeah. are coaches. You know, that's, that's, that's representing life in a pathological way and we're just repeating the, the, the mistakes of the past in it, if that mm. makes sense. Mm. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I, I think fit the, 
the school to the to meet the child's needs um yeah. and uh yeah not a fan of homework and a big fan of of uh mixed sex schools that would be my experience of it uh my apologies to all the single sex schools out there who <laughs> and i went to one too <laughs> um, um okay we better crack on do you want to go to the next one there yeah my child is seven years old and has autism in the third year in an asd class finally strong friendships are forming so a group of four friends was made since september for a reason i don't know child a started to name call and leave outside the games of child b child b is my child's favorite friend my child was extremely distressed about it never talks about school but told me this time how much stress it was having mainly because this has been happening since before christmas my child was keeping quiet and not telling the grown-ups around my child's main worry was telling that the other two kids were going to be expelled the teacher made a, a move to talk to the four of them without pointing out anyone in particular that name calling and not playing together hurt everyone and was not okay Although the name calling ended and we spoke at home in similar language as the teacher, my child is still extremely distressed about it, continually asking, why would anyone do such a thing and break another one's feelings? It seems my child has lost faith in friendships. Where do we go from here? Okay, that's a really good question. I mean, the, the, the child is seven and has autism. And again, that's an important part to that because there's something about, again, this is goes back to our, our kind of laboratory of life. The, the politic here is probably very commonplace, very representative, but there is no fairness to it. There is a complete randomness to it. Someone who, who perhaps is neurodiverse or, or has issues around autism is, they see the world in very black and white terms. So it's, it's either right or wrong, it's good or bad. It's, and so the global appraisals of the world are very clear, logistical and rational. So irrationality is, a real struggle for them to get their head around. You know, how can you be nice to me yesterday and mean to be today? Um, and and many seven-year-olds are a bit like that. But the child who who has this has neurodiversity here is going to struggle with um, seeing grey. Seeing the greyness is going to be not a case that they're unwilling to see it, but they're maybe unable to see it. And that's a really important part. So it's about supporting them to almost let go of the investment in the dynamic and to concentrate on their own dynamic and their own ability and i i would say that in childhood we see things in black and white terms so we see things good and bad you can remember back to that age group where i'm taller than you so i'm better than you so that's just it's very clear and it's very you know cowboys and indians goodies and baddies you know the world is very separate when you hit teenage years, then it's all very blurry. And hang on a second, Sarah Courtney is really nice and she's kind, but she can be really nasty. And, you know, how can that two, how can she be two things at once? And, you know, Coleman Nocter is really, he was nice to me yesterday, but he's really grumpy today. And, you know, how can you be both those? And so the complexity of teenage world and relationship is finding the comfort in the gray, trying to tolerate that people are different. And accepting the difference in them, but also accepting the difference in ourselves, that we allow our our dark and light sides to mix and that we're not all perfect and we're not all evil and we're not all bad. So we kind of integrate the thinking. But that's that's a task that takes a lifetime to for us to get into or get used to or accustomed to. And for a child with autism, that's going to be a, a more a rigid struggle. The good and bad is is they're less comfortable with irrationality. And so the, the work here is about teaching them to tolerate the uncertainty, 
tolerate the frustration of irrationality as opposed to trying to make the world rational. And again, it gets back to working on the individual, not the dynamic. The lens with which you see the world allows you to see it in a way that affects you or doesn't. And so let's readjust the lens with which you see it as opposed to trying to readjust the reality. Does that make sense? So again, very difficult. And again, I would say this child is not unwilling to see the gray, but maybe unable. Uh, but coaching them and supporting them to not allow that to affect them, to let things go, maybe the work uh, that would be most effective in that sense. Does that make, anything on that, Sarah? No, and again, this is the cohort that has been taken out of school. And you know that what we're saying earlier about just having practice around this and you know, I think most people are fairly confident the academics will get caught up, you know, you know, okay over time. But this side of things is just much harder. That social element, that impact that it's having on, on very young children uh, really can't be underestimated. So, you know, this is going to take some time again, I suppose. Thanks. Uh, the next question there was, I just see it as, it's how to be resilient. And I think we've kind of answered that, or so I don't want to go into that again, um, but believe that being perfect is everything and anything other than that is failure. Uh, that's again similar to the last one where you see things in very black and white terms so uh, our world is 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 unfortunately reinforcing that at the moment where if you rate things out of one to ten we see nine to ten as success and everything below nine is failure um, and with our ability to edit uh, copy paste filter all that sort of stuff means that perfectionism is on the rise um, and it is the epidemic of the teenager is perfectionism. Uh, I, I would see it as the idea that I have to get this or I'm fail. And, and the, we're, we're completely losing the concept of the spectrum of success. So eight to 10 is really good. Well done. Six to eight is fine. Good job. Five to six. Look, Grant, you're still there. Four to five. Okay. We could have done something better with that. Three to four. Okay. We need a plan B one to three. What supports do we need to help you with that? Right. The idea that, I don't know uh, whether you come from this vintage, Sarah, but when I was in school, going to grinds was when you really struggled with a subject or when your teacher was rubbish or where you were about to fail. Now go, we go to grinds in Leeson Street for a week and Easter to just get better results. You know what I mean? So the idea is that by our expectation, our implementation of failure and success is altering. It's getting higher and higher and higher. Um, we all have to go to university. We all have to get 600 points. We all have to do this. That's not reality. That's our imposition. That's our, the, again, the lens of which we see the world is creating that myth. And so for us, the idea is that we need to teach children the spectrum of success. Not that, you know, if you win the medal and the prize, you're amazing. If you don't, you're rubbish. Um, and social media, uh, the crudism, the tyranny of choice, the constant hyper-comparative culture, the tinderization of society, all of those things are pointing to us getting caught up in nine to 10 is success, everything below nine is failure. And as parents, we need to be doing everything we can to counter that. Uh, and as parents, we can fall into it. We want, you know, why is my child not counting to 10? You know, that child can count to 10. Or I'm going to put, play Mozart to my bump because I believe that they're going to be a genius if I do that. And, you know, that's parental expectation. And we need to manage that as well. Uh, why are you sending your child to grinds? You know, why is that pressure on them to get the 600 points? Why do you need them to be up there? What is that about? And as parents, we need to kind of reflect on that, what message we're sending our children as well, because uh, we may be playing inadvertently, uh, playing a part in that. 
so the spectrum of success is the best way to get around resilience because that's that means we'll be able to react and respond to whatever happens rather than just having one singular outcome that we need. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as parents, you want the best for your children. But it's, as you say, defining that. What What's success here? Is it just, you know, getting to school on time or is it just attending that class? And that's enough. That's OK. You know, it's not about the result all the time um, and what's going on in the home and what the language is, you know, is being used around that as well. The next question, I'm going to jump to the question eight there, if that's OK, Sarah. So following a shout out from Sarah's podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, here's a question. Seven-year-old places excessive value on treats. It drives me up the wall, never stops talking about them, gets pretty hyper at the thought of getting them. I relatively relaxed approach on treats and don't ban them by any means, but in fact, already gets too many, example, several a week, and we all know how it can be counterproductive. How can I get him to reduce the value he puts on treats and point him in the direction of something actually worth celebrating? Okay, now, I love this question because I think it makes a really good point. The... I wouldn't say that the last year hasn't had an impact on this. In the absence of anything outside of the home, the treat press has become the icon of importance. It has in my house, it has in everyone else's house. And the absence of a medal or a sport or a test or a validation or a reward or anything outside of the home means that the intensity with which we see these things becomes it becomes almost preoccupying from the point of view of that and you know I, I see it here when I'm working from home myself and I'm going if I get another hour done I'll treat myself to an Oreo and you know it's this overthinking these simple things and you know getting over excited about things getting over cross about things you know what I mean again in the absence of things to think about and the currency of life like I don't have nights out to talk about I don't have sport to be talking about I don't have work really to be talking about I don't have any scandals or gossip or anything so now somebody going to Tenerife to get their teeth done or somebody having a house party is consuming me and I'm so irate about it and so you know and you know having a, an easter egg hunt yesterday because of the vacuum of nothingness of this week was like oh my god I'm so excited about it it means that the absence of everything else means that simple things become overinvested. I would absolutely say that less is more when it comes to treats. I think the more you make them special, the more special they become. But I also think let's, you can't separate it from the year that's in it. And I think as life returns and other things start to occupy your seven-year-old's mind, then the treat, by proxy of being busy will become less important. Uh, so I would just maybe allow that to happen. But we are living in extraordinary times and we're going to have extraordinary reactions to it. So um, give yourself a break. I think this is probably understandable from that point of view, but it's more reflective of perhaps where the world is at rather than anything that's happening in your family home, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. And, you know, every possible way of enjoying ourselves at the moment seems to be tied up in something to eat or something to drink. And, I think this little seven-year-old is probably in the same boat and just looking for something that um, lifts the day. So um, hopefully that won't go on forever once we eventually go back to whatever normality is. Yeah, it's funny because um, I remember asking my sister, what are you going to do? For, are you giving up anything for Lent? And she was like, food is the only thing I have at the moment. I'm not giving There's up. There's nothing left. <laughs> nothing left. Um, and, and our last question, Sarah, this is a long one, so I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit. It's from a devoted listener. Thank you very much. Uh, 
and they've decided to ask this question. They want to insult uh, into their five-year-old boy, very extroverted, fearless kid, easy to make friends, always approaches kids in the park and asks if they want to play, speaks his mind clearly and overall very social boy. Noticing a different side to his openness, even last year in crash, he would get into fights, misbehave aggressively, seeming for no reason, push other kids. Notice it happens uh, after get, not getting what he wants when kids ignore him. He, we talked a lot at home about explaining that sometimes we won't get what we want and uh, kids may not want to play, but aggression is not the answer. Uh, things improved for a long time and we thought we grew out of it, but starting junior infants was great for him, got into the new environment. Uh, fast making many friends after school closures in January, February, we started noticing the behavior again, acting out whenever he doesn't get attention, starting to talk back, saying no to everything. Our usual opinionated, but overall reasonable child becomes a time bomb. Uh, example in the park goes up to older kids, wants to play football with them. If they ignore him and tell him he's too small, he starts to push them, grabs the ball, runs away with it. The other day he drew a glass bottle, uh, on the wall to a girl sitting on the bench he, she got scared of the glass splattered around her and a really embarrassing, embarrassing conversation with her mum. He said sorry, but didn't seem very bothered that the fact that the girl could have gotten hurt. The incident scared me. It's the first time it happened in something like this. Am I wrong in assuming that his age, he understands breaking glass, even if not throwing it directly, something can be lethal? Uh, when I asked why he did it, he said he tried to walk to her, talk to her, but she wouldn't reply and he wanted to get her attention. He was grounded and did seem to feel bad about it, but at this point, in very worried. He's not sure capable what he's capable of pulling next. He goes from nice, attentive and play to destructive. Um, any advice would be appreciated. Confused mom. Um, okay, this is this is complicated, but it's not. In some respects, what we're seeing here is emotional dysregulation. And again, the... the uh, Remind me of the age of this child. He he's is five. Five. So he hasn't developed the skill of age of reason yet. You wouldn't see that about seven or eight. So he doesn't have the capacity to understand to the extent of which his behavior impacts on other people. So uh, in, as human beings, we, we feel, we think, and we do. So I have a feeling, I'm going to think about it, I'm going to do something. A five-year-old just feels and does. The thinking bit doesn't really exist. And that's because they're unable to do it, not because they're unwilling. So the idea is, uh, I want your attention, and I'm going to get it whatever way I can. Having a meaningful understanding of his behavior, not probably at this stage, no. Uh, and so from that point of view, the, the, the guilt and remorse that we would expect from an older child is probably unreasonable to expect that at this point. What I am intrigued in is that his behavior improves when he's in school. And again, we go back to the importance of the laboratory of life, the, the school of hard knocks, the, the, the trialing things, making see, see if it works. Whatever works, I'll continue to do. Whatever doesn't work, I, I won't continue to do. And these are the hidden impacts of these lockdowns. We need our children to be around other people to learn these pivotal skills, really formative pieces around the way in which they interact with the world, see the world, you know, and people can be dismissive and go, oh, kids aren't getting their sport, get over yourself. The five-year-old is hugely important. You know, the stimulus of interaction, engagement, integration is a life skill, again, that they need to be having. And, you know, um, I just think we're seeing this, the impact of the loss of that across the board. Um, I genuinely think this child is, you know, is, will settle down. I think he'll start to regulate. And I think from your point of view, mum, it's even just trying to, to manage that again. I would even have a dial on the, on the fridge, one to ten. 
And when they're getting angry or upset, kind of finding them, getting them to identify them up around eight or nine. So how do we get that back down to seven and trying to kind of manage, visualize the temper or the anger or the emotionality just to make them aware of it. They may not be able to do anything about it. I don't think there's, I mean, I, th I think the question here is, you know, is, is, is this child kind of remorseless or is there something kind of more sinister going on? Not at five. You couldn't really establish that. And uh, the fact that mum is, is getting in contact with the, with the podcast and asking the question again, I think, Sarah, you, you would have said that's a really positive fact that she's going to do something about it. Um, by all means, use things like stories or trying to get him to emotionalize or see the world of others or see things through the eyes of the other person over the next number of years. That's the task to do that. It's not going to happen in one story. So be reasonable about your expectation. But for me, school is the key here. This kid needs to be in an environment where he is getting the feedback from the world, what is okay and not okay. At the moment, he's just not getting that. And as parents, as much as we try to do that, the peer group feedback is far more influential uh, and has far more of an impact on children than anything we say or do, and especially at that age. So yeah, let's get him back to school after Easter. Let's hopefully get a decent run between now and summer. Uh, and if there is any activities that he can take part in as a group or a tribe over the summer, I'd be really trying to make that ground up for him because um, children and lots like him need that at the moment. Yeah, I was going to say as well, just that on, on the summer piece, you know, hopefully the kids are definitely going back to school. This seems to be, you know, a real priority. But summer camps, you know, for, for parents who are working, they ha you know, they're essential. But for the children, they need that time to be in a different environment, be in groups, um, be outside, hopefully, and, and have that interaction and hopefully recover some of the damage that's been done. Um, I think it's just absolutely critical. So I'm, I'm really hopeful that this is an option for parents this summer, that good, uh, fun camps are, are available and um, we don't have any backwards um, steps in, in any of this because our kids really need the support now. 100% and, and I think for this year regardless of Irish weather you know just get raincoats on them get them outside let's get them mixing let's get them doing things um, uh, I think there it's become a vital resource uh, yeah. at this point um, and if if the restrictions allow us to do it safely I think we need all the creativity uh, as possible to, to, to make up for lost ground. Sarah, that's us. Our time is up. Um, I just really want to thank you for joining us uh, on, the, on the conversation today and giving of your time. And uh, I want the listeners to know this is a bank holiday that uh, we're recording this. And, and Sarah very kindly has donated almost an hour and a half of her time to, to, to doing this with me this morning. So I really genuinely appreciate it. If people were interested in getting in touch with you, Sarah, around some support around employees or... Uh, even some support about returning after maternity leave or, or whatever that might be. How would they find you? Yeah, my website, Coleman, uh, is sarahcourtneycoaching.ie. And I just want to say thank you for putting this podcast together because I have so much feedback from parents saying they're finding it so helpful. And I'm personally finding it helpful as a parent. So I think a lot of people really appreciate what you're doing. So thank you for the opportunity to chat. No problem. It was a pleasure. Um, so listen, guys, that's us for this week. Uh, if you have any questions you want to get in for the next Listener's Questions episode, you can get them through to us on askingforaparent at gmail.com or through 
the Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages. We are hoping that we will have our Children's Voices episode available, if not next week, the week after. It's just proving a challenge to edit because we have so many Children's Voices. But um, what, if, for those of you who don't know, what we decided to do was we we interviewed children over the last 12 months to get their experiences of lockdowns and everything else. And it's a fascinating episode. And just even editing it through it, it really has hit home for me some of the hidden impacts of that. So I think every parent and every human uh, will get something from that episode. Um, and I know there's a lot of uh, listeners out there who are waiting to hear their own voice coming out on that because they gave the interview some weeks ago. But rest assured, you will be here and you will be featured. But it's just going to, it's taking a little bit more time to get it right because that's one episode we really don't want to make a mess of. We really want to get that one right for, for everyone who, who gave our, their opinions on that. So looking forward to the listeners' voices, uh, listeners' children's voices uh, episode, uh, which will be out, if not next week, definitely the week after. All that's left for me to say is to wish you all a very happy Easter, to thank Sarah Courtney for her time, insight and expertise uh, this morning, and to wish you all a very good week. And we'll be in touch next week, but until then, take care, stay safe, and bye for now. That was the lovely Sarah Courtney there, and I'm really pleased to have Sarah on the, as a guest on this week's Listener's Questions episode. She had a great insight into the experience of parents who were returning to work, and sounds like she does fantastic work there in terms of reintegrating people after maternity leave. And as I said, I think from when we re-emerge and reboard after COVID, it'd be almost like we're all returning after maternity leave. And I think someone like Sarah, with her expertise and her role, will be ever more important. But... Uh, We got through so many topics there this week and thank you again for all your questions and I hope the insights and discussions that we had were helpful and useful to listeners who sent in the questions and those who maybe are listening on. But what we are realising is that I suppose our loss of social contact, our social practice, uh, our children's interaction with each other and the, the social development that occurs through them being together is probably bearing some green shoots which are altogether not that positive but the positive side of it is that with all the outlook on things looking more positive over the next couple of weeks and months if we can stay on track we should be able to get there and get back to some degree of getting on with each other mixing with each other and hopefully many of the issues that are coming up for people will resolve themselves through the return to life but uh, it's been a real pleasure. And again, if you have any questions, get in touch with us on askingforaparent at gmail.com. Get us through the Instagram, Facebook and uh, Twitter pages if you wish. And we hope you had a nice Easter and we hope you enjoy the rest of your break and enjoy the return to school next week. But until next week, where we'll be chatting to you again, uh, I just want to say take care, stay safe and bye for now.